Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. With your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 5, The Sparks of Hope in the Past. All right, welcome to History Against the Grain. We're back with you. This is going to be a little bit of a different kind of episode for reasons we'll get into. But I want to turn to Chris now, because he's got some uh, kind of popular culture and uh, real culture connections to make here. So take it away, Chris. Thank you, Josh. You must have known that because I texted you before dawn this morning uh, with the following. I apologize for that. Um, You know, I think life's imitating art again, isn't it? Uh, Watch the last episode last night of The Plot Against America, which is HBO's adaptation of the 2004 Philip Roth novel by the same name. Uh, The HBO production reimagines America's history and specifically the 1940 presidential election is being won by the popular aviator and, let it be said, crypto-fascist Charles Lindbergh uh, and his first America First uh, platform, uh, which advocated, as, as you know, a policy of nationalism and isolationism at a time of global conflict. So yeah, that was last night uh, with the wife watching TV. Light entertainment for before bed, right? Exactly. You know, just to, to make that transition into slumberland. Uh, now, Lindbergh and his little airplane, the Spirit of St. Louis, is depicted in a uh, in a broadcast version as a vehicle for a growing climate of nativism, uh, angry and violent protests against America's enemies, including uh, what it would seem mostly domestic enemies in this case, uh, with a rising tide of anti-Semitic anger toward American Jews, Uh, not to mention foreign policy dalliances with fascist governments, particularly Nazi Germany. And even in the last episode, voter suppression. By voter suppression, I mean actually burning ballots in a literal bonfire. So in other words, Josh, uh, American life as it is in 2020. Well, look, Keep in mind, though, for you sticklers out there, you history sticklers, uh, admittedly, Donald Trump has never flown a tiny airplane solo across the Atlantic. Though the parallels are striking in other ways. You know, I woke up this morning to news, and thus the early text to you, uh, that he had tweeted overnight, again, uh, and, and again, let it be acknowledged, Lindbergh never tweeted. He just appeared in newsreels and on the radio but that he, President Trump, was announcing uh, closing America's borders. Let me repeat that, closing America's borders. Here's the tweet in full. I'm not sure I can do this justice where the all caps are concerned, but in light of the attack from the invisible enemy, both invisible and enemy capitalized, as well as the need to protect the jobs of our great, that would be all caps, American citizens, I will be signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. 
close quote. So I don't know, Josh, take your pick. A fictional American presidency in the 40s or an all too real one in 2020? Both of them casting a dark shadow of nationalism across borders. We get rid of both? We have to choose? <laughs> this is actually an example that, you know, you said life imitating art, but in, in some ways, Trump's campaign is, is built around Lindbergh's old old platform, right? America first, first shows up, uh, you know, with, with Lindbergh in the 1930s, even that early. Yeah. Yeah. In the late thirties, as war in Europe was gathering steam and, and Lindbergh became one of these voices for American isolationism. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because this is almost the, the, the opposite of what we've been, we've been thinking about, but this is a story that has been buried uh, for different reasons then, because I, I don't think Lindbergh comes up that much anymore. You know, I think during Trump's campaign, it, it, it some people kind of uh, dug up like, you know, that uh, Dr. Seuss had done these cartoons. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Talking about America first and how it's kind of crypto Nazism and that kind of stuff. That's, you know, there, there's a value in, in, in digging up this kind of stuff, too, because that's part of our past as well. Right. FDR wins ultimately. But the fact that Lindbergh was this uh, national figure is, is telling as, as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sinclair Lewis wrote a novel, I think, in 1935 or so, or 36, called It Couldn't Happen Here. Yeah, that one started selling really well uh, after uh, 2016, I believe, right? <laughs> exactly. And and Philip Roth does his thing in 2004. And uh, something you and I were talking about earlier is that sometimes, you know, we turn to the artists if, if life is imitating art, then we should turn to the artist to figure out what this means. You know, uh, historians like to think of themselves sometimes as more in the camp of science, and social science. But, uh, you know, really these narratives by these writers uh, present in a stark and really terrifying way the reality, you know, of what these movements uh, engender, what they become. So to wake up this morning with a tweet was... That's how you want to wake up, right? What was I doing looking at my phone? <laughs> Let me say, by the way, I saw it in a, in a news article. I'm not actually following uh, this person on Twitter. That, that makes me feel better. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a sickness. This we gotta we gotta stop. I've, I'm at the point where I just don't want to read anything anymore. I don't want to watch anything anymore. Is that let the ostrich hide my head in the sand? <laughs> Except for history against the grain. Then then that's where I pull my head out of the sand and we run headlong into, into danger. Uh, all right, so we are uh, doing something different this week. Uh, instead of our usual segments, what we did this week is we have two interviews. And um, both interviews touch on at least, uh, you know, kind of the history of China. And this is, I thought it was fun to do these interviews, fun to listen to them. Because this is one of those things, I don't think we really, we didn't really plan this in this way. It just kind of came together like this. But we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, American stories and American nationalism and the way this this creates this um, this particular narrative that, you know, has just been passed on so much through through schools and through popular culture. And it becomes part of just how people think of of our country. And so turning the attention, our attention to China here, we, we really can see, I think, how there's nothing unique about this American process. And in fact, it's a process that gets played out again and again and again across the world as nationalism becomes the main way for people to kind of understand their, their selves and their identity 
and their 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 place in the world in some ways. Now the Chinese process is different. Uh, it's a thing that I, uh, that we'll we'll see in the, these interviews, um, but it is a reminder that while there are are distinctions between the process of nationals in the United States, the way the story is written, and the way it's written in China, it's very much the part of the same process. And as I think we go forward in this 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 podcast, we're going to certainly try to uncover uncover more and more of these stories to get at the fact that there is this this kind of human history going on from the 19th century where increasingly nationalism becomes this this dominant force that divides up the world and and does cast this shadow of darkness as as you stated um across across i think history in many ways how we write history how we think about history and how we think about ourselves well said so uh we're going to start with my interview of my brother actually ben o'weiner and uh he's got a book coming out june 15th we will talk about it uh through the interview and he's writing about um this portion of kind of greater tibet called amdo um and this process by which the people of amdo were uh going to be attempted to to be um integrated into this socialist nation of china post 1949 and and some of the problems that that came about as a result um this is a very particular story but like a lot of things in history there's a, a there's a broader lesson to get from this there is a uniqueness to the story but there's also universality to what's happening that's me followed by chris's interview with adam hatch who has been living in in taiwan for the last 10 years and he's going to reflect upon the experience of living in taiwan living in east asia um the relationship between china and taiwan and then taiwan's kind of a uh, longer history as this this crossroads of culture in in east asia anything you want to add to that i'm excited to hear these guys yeah so this is was a fun diversion uh we will try to mix in these kind of episodes every now and then but without further ado here's Ben O'Weiner followed by Adam Hatch. All right, well welcome to the podcast Ben O'Weiner. This is going to be a strange podcast for listeners because the interviewer and the interviewee are going to sound exactly the same. So you're going to have to use a context clues to figure out who's talking at any given moment. Generally, if somebody says something really smart, you can assume it's me. And then maybe, you know, not so smart. It's my brother. Kidding, of course. Unfortunately, this is uh, this isn't film because it would be the better looking one would be me. <laughs> as far as the nope. smart part, he's probably correct. They say I've, I've got a face for podcasts. <laughs> uh, so welcome to the podcast. Where Thank I wanted you. to start, so we're going to talk about your book, uh, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier. Now, you were supposed to be, I think, in Oxford. Was it this week? Uh, Cambridge, actually. Oxford Cambridge, sorry. Conference in Cambridge for a talk. Um, yeah, this week, Tuesday, actually, um, for a book talk. So this is pretty much the same, right? Yeah, it's pretty good. The uh, the high table and all. I think we probably, we probably might have more listeners than than you would get it. <laughs> that, that's not Cambridge that's possible. Um, we're going to sell you some books. We're going to sell some books over the course of this next thirty minutes or so. Great. Uh, so the the place I want to start though was kind of more broadly speaking because you've been you've been studying. Um, I mean, now really you're you're studying Tibet and Tibetans, but um, your your studies began as just a, a China historian um, mm -hmm. in as an undergrad, yep. and then you eventually made your way to Columbia University and and got your PhD there. But yep. um, I wanted to ask just about your experience in working in China over the past. I think ninety three was the first time you went there. Sounds right. Yes. So what's what's changed about working and traveling in China over the past almost thirty years now? Uh, wow, thirty years. 
Uh, almost, almost everything's changed. To be perfectly honest, I mean, d- just physically, the way the the, the city, the, the cities look, the country looks, the uh, the way people are dressed, the way I mean, there's 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 no shortage of of you know, someone from 1993 would show up in in 2020 and really not recognize a, a lot of of what you what you encounter there today. A big part of that is that um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Western China. Uh, and Western China is 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 populated obviously by a lot of of ethnic Chinese, but this is also where you see a lot of the um, non non ethnic Chinese, where called minorities or Shashu Minzu in Chinese, uh, including Tibetans. And we're going back way to 1993, back to 1993. This is really something that really um, always intrigued me: is how these people fit into the, the the nation state, what makes them Chinese, what doesn't make them Chinese, and that's something that that really sort of driven my, my research processes ever since then, even, even when I didn't realize it. Um, and I guess what's changed uh, in terms of doing work in, in China is that while access to these areas is becoming remarkably more, more easy, what used to take sometimes 24 hours by bus now can be a couple hours by, by, by you know, high-speed uh, freeways uh, or trains, um, is that the political situation has really deteriorated. Um, it was never particularly good um, for Tibetans and, and Uyghurs and, and other sort of um, minority peoples that don't have a lot of, of political or economic power. But I think within the, in the last 10 years, it's really uh, reached a, a new low, um, which makes doing work there incredibly difficult uh, and sensitive. You don't want to get anybody in trouble. Uh, just meeting with, with, with somebody potentially has the, the, leads to the possibility that they will uh, find themselves, um, you know, spoken to by authorities. Archives have basically closed down. They were never very open, but the ones that were open now are, are mostly shut. So in terms of doing work in China, it's become, um, at the same time as living there has become easier and easier. Doing research there, at least the kind of research that I do, that I do has become uh, almost untenable, almost impossible, I think. Yeah, we were, we were actually talking about this before, and you haven't been there in eight years, which is probably the longest you've gone yeah, it is. Uh, over this whole time without mm-hmm. going to China. Right. And, and a part of that's because, you know, I have a, you know, a, a position at a university and I teach and part of it's because I've been finishing this book, but a part of it's because I, I don't feel comfortable, um, especially with this book coming out uh, that, that, you know, that I could, I could potentially cause problems for people. And that's, you know, uh, that would be a terrible thing to have on your conscience um, if that were to happen. So, yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, I, you, you know, you were, you were scheduled to go to Taiwan actually this, this summer, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Where it seems like you're doing more and more of your research in their archives than, than yeah. the actual uh, PRC archives. Yeah, Taiwan's uh, amazing. It's, it's, it's open, it's democratic, it's, it's, uh, it's accessible. It's, it's, just, it's just a really easy place to do research. And there are some great resources there. Unfortunately, it doesn't have the the local sources that I would like to that I use in this book, and I would like to use for future projects. Um, you're going to find stuff in Taiwan that is uh, was brought there by the national government. So, you know, communications between the 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 central government in Nanjing and and localities sometimes. I found I have found some some great stuff, but you're not going to find the real local um, sources that I was able to use for for this book. So. Uh, it, it, you know, there's some, there's some great things about Taiwan, but it really doesn't entirely um, solve the problem. Right. You know, as you were talking about, you not wanting to get people in trouble. We traveled to China together in 95. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I don't remember what town it was, maybe you do, but it was somewhere in the West in a Tibetan area. And we had this, we met these uh, young Tibetan monks. Yeah. Yeah. And had lunch with them. And I think even then you were a little worried about 
mm-hmm. you know, were they putting themselves too much out there? Was this going to get them, you know, surveilled? Was this going to cause yeah. trouble? Yeah. Um, and things obviously gotten a lot worse since that yeah, time. That, 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 that's true. And I, I think that it was maybe in the Labrang or Shaka area or, or, or I'm trying to remember now as well. Uh, but essentially in the area that I, that I do work in and on today. And I, I should say things have always been bad for, for Tibetans. Uh, when I would go to Tibet, I studied at Lhasa University for a couple of summers uh, in the mid 2000s. Um, you know, you, you, you were, it was in, in central Tibet, around Lhasa, it's always been incredibly sensitive uh, and it's always been very difficult to have open conversations with people, for, for example. But in, in the area that I've been working on, which is Tibetans call Amdo, which is uh, Qinghai province, Gansu province, Northwest China, uh, that's sort of the northwest part of the northeast part of the Tibetan plateau. The political situation has always been much more lax, let's say, or, or, or you know, relative, relatively open. But that's really changed since 2008, in particular, uh, when there was a, a series of, of, of protests or uprisings against the Chinese state, um, and, and things have been very bad since then. So as we get into the book, I want to start with something you said in the intro introduction. I had a chance to read um, it last night. You said. History often serves the battleground on which competing visions of the nation are fought. Who should be included and excluded, where natural boundaries begin and end, and naturals mm-hmm. in quotes there. This right. almost always requires a process of simplification in which inconvenient details are forgotten and pre-modern logics are repurposed in the service of more recent presumptions about identity, loyalty, and sovereignty. And that's such a great um, statement there. And, you know, It's almost like the mission statement of this podcast, in fact. <laughs> okay. So we can start there. Um, can you just talk a little bit about this battleground, these competing visions of the nation, um, and how it's it's affecting this particular area that, that you're talking sure. about. Sure, I mean I, th- I think this is a, it's a fairly universal subject, but one that's got a lot of, uh, of of play in China in particular. For whatever reason, the Chinese Communist Party, more than most regimes, uh, very directly looks at history as a legitimizing instrument to explain its 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 rule over non-Chinese areas of of, of the state. So it, it claims, for instance, that Tibet, uh, however you want to define that, has been part of China since at least the 13th century during the Mongol Empire, and saying because it was incorporated by the Mongols in the 13th century, it's part of China today, for example. And, and there's many other examples uh, of this use of history in, in this sort of way. And what, I, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting, obviously, I, I hope obviously, is that um, these are, are presumptions that aren't really, don't have, really have any foundation. The Chinese nation state is not just a modern manifestation of the of imperial China, of the Qing dynasty or the Ming dynasty or, or the Yuan dynasty before that. It's a brand new political community, a brand new state. Uh, but what it tries to do is it tries to borrow or, or, or claim, I guess, the rights and legitimacies of its, of its imperial predecessors. But nation states are different than empires. And without wanting to... Um, apologize for empires, which of course have committed tremendous violence in, in many, 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 you know, throughout history. The nation, nation states are incorporative in a way that, that empires tend not to be. Empires tend to rule over diverse populations separately. Uh, they don't try to transform them uh, into uh, a singular political community the way that a nation state does. And this is where modern China, the modern Chinese nation state or state, the Communist Party, uh, runs into problems. Uh, it's tried to, um, it, it successfully, it's been a successful state builder in the sense that it has taken over most of the boundaries of the former Qing dynasty, the Qing Empire, which was actually a Manchu, ethnic Manchu empire. And so the, the, the boundaries of the People's Republic of China are very similar to the boundaries of the Qing Empire, 
with the exception of Mongolia, which for various reasons is, is not part of it. Um, but it's been less successful at nation building. In other words, of convincing these people on the edges of, of China, places that used to be part of a, of a Qing empire, and they were ruled separately from China. Tibetans were not ruled the same way that, that Chinese were ruled under the Qing empire. The Chinese Communist Party has had difficulty explaining to Tibetans and Uyghurs and, and some others of why they should be Chinese, why they have a stake in the Chinese nation state. They were mostly, in many cases, okay with being part of a Qing empire because it actually, um, the benefits to, to Tibetan elites under the Qing empire were, were pretty good most of the time. To, to, to explain to Tibetans and, and, and Uyghur Muslims and others what their stake in is, is, is part of the Chinese nation state has they've been less successful at that. And this sort of underlines the, the difference between empire and nation and the, the, the difficulties that nations have in trying to transform themselves from an empire into this, this new political community called a, a nation state. Right, which we, we take for granted so much that, you know, the, the entire idea of the nation is the nation is made up of these natural communities, right? That, that right. They, they exist historically, they exist by, by nature essentially. Mm -hmm. But, you know, something that's, that's, this is obviously something that goes on in all nations that they've got to convince people they're part of the nation. Right. But you, you kind of see it so differently than, you know, the European nations are forming in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. They're figuring out as they go. Whereas when you get to the Chinese in, you know, post 1949, they've mm -hmm. got by that point, a century plus of, of nation building to kind of look back on and, Right. and to, to kind of uh, feed off of and to be influenced by. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's so interesting as, as kind of I was reading and you were, you were talking is that the Chinese state, is the communist state is very sophisticated in a mm -hmm. way that maybe you wouldn't expect from this group of people who had never really been responsible for something like this before. Yeah. Right? This wasn't a group of, of kind of bureaucrats who had been part of mm -hmm. uh, you know, government for, for a long time. I, I'm kind of comparing this to the Cuban Revolution Okay. Where, you know, when that, when the Cuban revolution occurs, you look at who's in charge and it's like a bunch of 24 year olds yeah, and they're yeah. literally just trying to figure things out as they go. Right. And then in this Chinese revolution, they kind of pick up, you know, they're already running, right? They, they already have this idea of, it yeah. seems as if you can correct me if I'm wrong. They have this idea of, of what they need to achieve and how they're going to achieve it. And something that's really interesting that I, I we talked about, maybe I, I can't remember if this is also in your, in your introduction. I think it is. Um, that they're not in, just engaged in nation building post-1949, but they're literally helping to invent the very categories yeah, yeah. that they're going to, of the people that they're going to rule over. I mean, you can make a case that these, these ideas of who's Tibetan, who's not, is um, itself a constructed idea. And, and the mm -hmm. Chinese rule, PRC rule, has been a big part of that construction as well. A absolutely. And that, that, that's, a, that's a big, big uh, introduction. I'm not quite sure where to start. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party did have experience. Uh, they weren't 24 anymore. They had been in the field for 20 years in some cases. Uh, but yeah, that's a little different than, than running a massive uh, nation state or a socialist state like they would after 1949. They did have some experiences uh, in quote unquote minority areas because they were sort of sequestered in the Northwest during, during the war uh, against Japan. Um, and, and they realized from that experience that the, the issue of ethnicity or what they called nationality or minzu in, in, in Chinese was a real problematic one. Uh, from the get-go, more or less, from 1949 on, they were sure that all the people that are in the boundaries of today's China are part of a historical political community 
of, uh, you know, a, a one state, a multinationality state, as they called it, Duominzugorja. But they were equally, which this is what I found out was really fascinating to me, they're equally sure that the people on the peripheries, Tibetans and others, didn't realize this. They didn't understand this otherwise objective fact. So what they try to do in, in the region that I study is they try to convince these people of their place within the Chinese nation, the multi-ethnic Chinese nation. Uh, and part of that actually was first to convince them that they were Tibetans and that Tibetans were one part of this Zhonghua Minzu, this, this larger community. So China today considers itself to be a multi-ethnic uh, state made up of 56 nationalities, 55 of them being minorities and one, the, the majority, the Han Chinese. The problem is in places like, like, like Amdo, when they got there, they said, yeah, there's Kazakhs here, there's, there's Tibetans here, there's Mongols here, there's Muslims here, but they don't know who they are. They don't even know that. So one of the things they, they, they had to do, or they thought they had to do, first off, was to convince Amdo Tibetans that they, were, that they were Tibetans. Their identities were often much more local than that. They thought of themselves as being from this area, or this valley, or from uh, this, uh, this monastery. Now, they also had larger identities. They, they realized they had commonalities with other Tibetan speakers across the plateau and other uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, religious leaders, uh, sorry, uh, Buddhist, um, uh, you know, uh, Buddhist identity. Um, but they didn't think of themselves often as, in, in ethnic terms. And then one of the things the Chinese state tried to do was to implement this, to, to infuse them with this idea of being Tibetan and Tibetans being part of, of China. That didn't go so well, did it? Well, it depends on who you ask. One, one of the things that they've been, that one of the great successes, arguably, of the Communist Party since 1949 is the Minzu Shribia project, the Minzu Identification Project. Uh, your, your, your ethnicity or your nationality is on your identif identification card. Um, and nowadays, Tibetans from across the plateau consider themselves to be Tibetan. Um, they didn't in 1949. So if that was their goal, that was successful. Right, right. If their goal was to convince them that that means they're part of China, then the, 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 then the jury's still out. Certainly some do, but, but, but many, many don't. Um, as an aside, uh, most historians now agree that there really wasn't a word for Tibetan that was universal for all people we now consider to be Tibetans in 1949. That, that phrase was essentially invented by the Chinese, by the, in English. Um, the word that we use, pu or puba, didn't mean that. It meant people around Lhasa. Uh, but mm -hmm. now it's come to encompass the entire sort of what we think of the Tibetan ethnicity. So Tibetans really were invented in part as, as a single people uh, by the Chinese state, but also in exile once they, once they leave Tibet after 1959 when the Dalai Lama flees. A big part of this nation building process happens also in exile, not just in China. But certainly the, 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 the Communist Party is a big part of that. Right. And, you know, as you're saying that, this is actually pretty common. You know, you, you, you think of it more, though, in terms of empires, and they go like the British in India, um, that so much of the identity mm -hmm. construction happening in India, I mean, even along caste lines, is created by the British themselves who are trying to, right. and this is where I'm kind of seeing a link here, is this, this tendency of empires, and uh, mm -hmm. we've talked about this in an earlier episode, tendency of empires to want to believe that they see their, their conquered populations, the populations they rule objectively, and only they can see the populations objectively. So in some ways, they understand these populations, these peoples better than the peoples understand themselves. Absolutely. Um, and that, of course, these are Tibetans, and they should, be, they should know themselves as Tibetans, just like, you know, for the British, Indians should know their caste identity. And that should be something that's, you talk about identification cards, they maybe don't have that, but that's something you should, on a census, you should be able to mark your caste, and that becomes part of who you are. Yep. And you know, in their attempt to kind of 
describe what they're seeing in these places, what they're actually doing is constructing an, an entirely new reality for mm -hmm. the people that they're describing. Yeah. And, and I should add that the Qing Empire was an early modern empire that was doing a lot of things that other early modern empires were doing, whether it's the Russians or the British or the Ottomans or, or you know, whoever in their, in their later stages. So they did do things like had ethnographies that were created so they would know who's inside their, their boundaries. Um, so, you know, the Qing wasn't engaged in some of these same practices that we see, see elsewhere. I think the difference with the Communist Party, although they come with these very modernist, I mean, well, I mean, there's this very modernist designs that, that, that they have that, that, you, um, that you suggest, is that unlike the ethnography projects that the Qing were doing, the ones that the, um, the Communist Party were doing were transformative. They were self-consciously transformative, right? That by making Tibetans understand that they're Tibetan, and then, um, and then showing them the, and this is what I talk about in my book, showing them the benefits of, 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 of socialism and the Chinese Communist Party and state, you could then transform them into citizens. You could transform them into being part of this multi-ethnic um, uh, community. And, and the, the, the words that they use in my documents is they want this transformation to happen gradually, voluntarily, and organically. Um, so this was an idea that we can, sort of push history forward, so to speak, right? To transform these people into modern members of the Chinese nation state. Right, that's, that's really interesting. I, you know, as I'm wondering kind of is if this is, this is part of the Marxist influence is that, you know, Marx obviously is very aware of, of history and, and the way the history is supposed to play out. And, you know, I wonder if, if this idea that they're, they're kind of pushing history in the, in the same way that you gotta have a bourgeois revolution before you can have the communist revolution, that kind of stuff, that they're trying to, they know what has to eventually occur and they're trying to, you know, almost uh, engineer history to get to the yeah. place where the, that, that yeah. they know they have to get to. Yeah, I mean, the, the Minzu project, the, the idea of, 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 of identifying these different peoples, this was all borrowed directly from Stalin. Right. But I should add that it was borrowed from Stalin. And uh, Thomas Mulaney has a book um, in particular where he argues that once they got into the field, nothing, it didn't work right. They had, they had to invent things as they, as they went. Um, they were crossing the river by grasping at stones, as, as the Chinese phrase went. So mm -hmm. um, they did begin with that, but the, it becomes much more, more, more complex. Um, what's interesting about my, my, my documents, however, is they don't really talk in those terms. They don't reference uh, the Soviet Union very much and its, its nationality projects. Um, they're really talking in, in, in very sort of high modernist terms that could be almost universal in the sense that we need to modernize these people. We need to, we need to if we give them uh, better standards of living, if we give them better education, if we give them better healthcare, um, then they will be transformed. Um, granted, they're gonna be transformed into a socialist society in this, in this case, but that's not, that, that, you know, that, that's not the kernel, right? It, it, could be, it could be almost any transformative modern, modern, modernist project. So I got a kind of a, a strange question. I, I don't know if this okay. is answerable. You know, when you're reading about Mao, when you're talking about Mao and, and, and the communists, one question that's really hard to, to get a handle on is, do they believe this stuff, you know, as truly for the benefit of the people that they're, they're, be, they're becoming part of the Chinese nation? Was it always kind of a cynical attempt to just create this new power structure? Or do they legitimately believe that they were going to be helping and, and improving the lives of, of people on the, the margins of this, this nation? I mean, that, that, it's, it's sort of a, a, a gotcha question. You don't want to start saying things that you're going to regret. But right. the, that's the, what I'm here. I'm, I'm a gotcha journalist. That's what, yeah, I'm, that's what I'm doing here. The simple answer is that I believe that it was not cynical. Uh, nothing in my documents suggests that it was. Um, that doesn't mean that it wasn't coercive. 
there were certain powers in place that were implementing things. Um, you know, it wasn't done in, 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 a, in a democratic way, right? There were assumptions that the party made and its leaders made that had to be implemented because they knew best. But their goal was to better people's lives and, and bring them into this, this, this national body. I have, I have no doubt about that, at least in the 1950s. It doesn't work the, there's for various reasons, including that there's ingrained prejudices in the project, which see these people as being backward and in, in need of, of, of radical transformation. This gradual transformation, a lot of people think, is too slow. We need to implement socialism overnight. And this is going to end up in, in revolution or rebellion, I should call it probably. The, the, in 1958, during the Great Leap Forward, there's a massive rebellion in Amdo um, of, of Tibetans and Muslims and Mongols, um, and then a, a brutal pacification, uh, absolutely brutal uh, counterinsurgency campaigns, you know, similar to what you'd see in the American West or in any sort of counterinsurgency uh, uh, um, environment in which tens of thousands of people are, are arrested, thousands and thousands are killed, um, villages are, are emptied, children are sent off to, to state schools, the, the whole nine yards. Um, so when you look at it backwards from 1958, 59, you, it's very easy to say this is a cynical attempt. We were just biding our time until we had the power structure in place, the military in place, the state in place, and then we can move on these, these Tibetans and forcibly integrate them into, the, into, the, into the, this new nation or, or this new state. But if you start, if you read the documents from when they were actually produced, starting in the early 1950s and, and going forward, I think it, it's pretty clear that this was not a, a predetermined or predestined conclusion or, or outcome. Um, there was a real attempt to do these things, again, voluntarily and gradually, although it's, it's also pretty easy to see why this, this, this went wrong. One of the things that's, that's so striking is, is, is there, there's, it seems like there's a case we made that if Mao, I guess we, I'm just using him as the, the kind of avatar for this whole, whole proxy, movement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, if he just could have been more patient, right? Because they have these long-term plans, right. Right. but it seems like they can never have the patience to actually yeah. carry these things out. Right. They always want to jump steps. In some ways, he was more patient than most when it comes to ethnic minority areas. You know, I, I would argue, Melvin Goldstein in his new books on Central Tibet would argue, some would, would disagree. Uh, but this impatience, this is part of the problem. It's built into the party. It's built into the operational mechanisms of the party, it's built into campaign politics. It's built into any, any system in which a cadre can get in danger if he is not or she is not revolutionary enough, extreme enough. In other words, whenever there's a political campaign, let's just talk about land reform or, or communization. If you're not sure what to do, it's always better to err to the left. It's always better to err by going too far. Because if you go too far, all you can be is blamed for being too socialist, too uh, uh, ambitious. And these are bad things, but this is a disciplinary problem. This is, a, this is a, a, a political problem. If you're too far to the right, if you don't, don't go far enough, then you can be accused of being a rightist or a counter-revolutionary or things that can be very bad for you. There's always a dynamic under Mao to push to extremes, and that's partially because it's baked into the system uh, of, of this bureaucracy that is hyper-politicized. I just have a couple more questions. So one, I think one of the big questions that you're asking, this idea of, of whether Tibet should be part of China, right. and you're saying that's not really even the right question, whether Tibet should be part of China. Can you talk about that? Maybe what's the better way to frame the issue instead of whether Tibet should be or, or should not be part of China? 
I mean, that's a moral question. I mean, I think it's fine for people to ask that. People can people people can determine that on their own based on what they feel that the the, the world should look like. Um, I certainly would never tell a, a Tibetan exile, for instance, that Tibet should or should not be part of, of, of China. And as a historian, I think it's better a, a better question, a more important question, is to think about why Chinese state builders have tried to integrate Tibet into the nation for so long, how they've tried to do it, and why it's been unsuccessful. Right. If you're thinking about just the history of nationalism in general, every nation is made up of pieces that don't seem to belong, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing strange about having a, a place that was not part of it and then becomes part of it. That's the right. history of France. That's the history of Great Britain. That's the history so the question, of the United States. The question becomes why is it successful sometimes and why is it not successful other times? Uh, and of course, there's probably a wide range uh, of options within there. But if, if Tibet was its own nation state, there would be parts of Tibet that would probably push back at this, or they would have originally. There have been a lot of Tibetans that didn't think of themselves as being part of this nation state. There'd be a lot of people that aren't Tibetans that are mixed into these areas that would maybe chafe at being part of a Tibetan nation state. So the question really isn't whether something should or should not be its own nation state, but what are the processes that either, either created it or, or prevented it from happening? And I think one of the difficulties to talk about this is if the process is successful, Mm -hmm. What that often means is you don't even see it as having happened. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's just a natural part of China then. And right. it, you don't study that process of how, how it worked. But when it doesn't work, then it's so clear that there's this thing that's not working. Yeah. And I think that's if, if you want to look at what the Chinese Communist Party has been unable to do, is it's un been unable to erase the, the memory of this failed integration in the 1950s. In 1960s, other parts of China have been more successfully integrated into the, the Chinese national body. Now, that may have been a, 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 a less difficult climb because they may have been Chinese speakers, for instance, people that now consider themselves to be Han Chinese. But that was a creation also in the 20th century, this idea of a, of a single Han Chinese ethnicity, just like idea of a single Tibetan ethnicity was a creation of the 20th century. I guess what the point of my book is that the Chinese Communist Party, in a sense, understood this in the 1950s. And they had a plan to overcome it. They thought they knew how they could uh, uh, solve this very, very difficult task of, of, of convincing Tibetans that they, they are Chinese. And I don't mean Chinese in the ethnic sense, but I mean Chinese as part of this, this multi-ethnic community again. And what I argue is when, when this project failed and when it turned to violence and then it turned to uh, this remarkable uh, uh, counterinsurgency and uh, huge levels of brutality that accompanied it, uh, then it's followed by the Cultural Revolution and, and more violence, political campaigns that have been, uh, security campaigns that have been, been brought to, uh, against Tibetans in the years since. Uh, Tibetans have no reason to feel that they have a stake in the modern Chinese nation. The state has been unsuccessful at resolving that contradiction. They had a plan in the 1950s. Whether or not it could have worked, we don't know. It didn't work. And they haven't been able to find a counter-narrative or a new narrative that explains the Tibetans why they should be part of, why they have a stake in the Chinese nation state. They've tried to do it through economic development, maybe some successes in that, in that sense, but you know, a lot of that development has been, a lot of the beneficiaries are not necessarily average Tibetans. They're often people from outside of Tibet. So I, I think it's arguable that the Chinese state just hasn't figured out how Tibetans fit in. They haven't figured out how Uyghurs fit in, Uyghur Muslims and other people in, in Xinjiang. And most importantly, they haven't figured out how to convince Tibetans and Uyghurs that they should fit in, they should have a stake in this nation state. Right, which is the essence of all this, right? That, that the, the idea of the nation is that we all have stake, a stake in this thing called the nation. If you can't convince mm -hmm. the people that right. they're part of this, it's right. gonna be a, it, it's gonna be exactly what's happening in China right now. Right, 
it becomes coercive in nationalism rather than voluntary nationalism right. or, or some 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 variation of that. So I want to end with um, with this quote. So uh, Walter Benjamin is kind of the patron saint of this podcast. His face okay. graces our our artwork. Um, okay. He's got this idea. So he's writing in the, the late 30s, early 40s, I believe, about what a history, what history should do, what a historian should do. And he says, the only writer of history with the gift of setting alight the sparks of hope in the past is one who is convinced of this, that not even the dead will be safe from the enemy if he is victorious. And this enemy has not ceased to be victorious. And I thought of that quote because as I was reading your stuff and particularly reading your acknowledgements, and I'll talk about that in a second, yeah. it seems like what you're, you're trying to make sure of in many ways, and, and I think what good history should try to do is that there's a story out there that's not being told, that's not people are not aware enough of. And if people like you are not going into these archives and, and dredging up these stories that I think the people empowered rather you did not dredge up, the dead would not be safe from the narratives that the the ruling power structure is is putting in place. And so you're really doing valuable work in trying to keep safe even those who are dead from from you know this power structure that would seek to kind of erase them. Um, and the reason I, I thought of this is because when I was reading your acknowledgments, you thank so many people, um, but you also note that there's a lot of people you can't thank by name because mm -hmm. it could get them in trouble. Yeah, thank you. I mean, one of the one of the really valuable things I, I hope about this um, about this book is that it's really a grassroots history, and I don't maybe we didn't emphasize that enough. It, it's the history at at the bottom. It's what happens when the party state meets people on the grasslands of Amdo. So there's been lots, not lots, been books about, you know, the Dalai Lama and his dealings with Mao. And, you know, there's, there's all these elite stories about this, the, the, the clash between China and Tibet. We really don't know how it played out on the ground, how Tibetans responded to the Chinese state and really what the Chinese, Chinese state tried to do at, at, at the grass, uh, grassroots level, excuse me. So hopefully the book, um, you know, will, will sort of uncover and, and, and sort of uh, the, 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 the actual people, the actual processes, uh, both on the side of the state and on the side of local populations, uh, when this, this new thing, the People's Republic of China, came to the Amdo grasslands for the first time, and how these engagements developed, and how they fell apart, and what the human cost is. So I, I do highlight a lot of individuals, mostly these people were, were sort of local leaders, um, Tibetans who, who suffered tremendously under the Chinese state. And we don't really know the name so much of the, of the common people who, who also suffered. But I do want to acknowledge that, uh, that there are Tibetans that are doing this work. Uh, there are Tibetans in Amdo and elsewhere who through uh, oral history collections, through interviews, through literature, uh, through uh, word of mouth, are bringing these stories to light. Uh, if your re readers are interested, one of the the, the best uh, that's an English translation is called My Tibetan Childhood by Naksan Nulo, which is his story as a child uh, during the Amdo Rebellion of 1958. And it's, it's just very powerful on, on, on many levels. So I appreciate your acknowledging what I'm trying to do. And I, I'd like to acknowledge the work that people in China, in Amdo are doing, sometimes at great uh, risk to their own their own safety. Absolutely. We'll put that, we'll put that reference up on the website as well. So people can, right. can go check it out if they're, if they're interested. Yeah. This has been awesome. Uh, I think we're the new Cuomo brothers, right? Which one am I? I think you're Andrew. You're the one who's that. presiding over this uh, pandemic. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. Us collectively have a better chance of being president than either of them though. Uh, time will tell. Time will tell. All right. Uh, this has been great. Thank you so much. And the book Thank is you. the Chinese revolution on the, on the Tibetan frontier. I'm very proud of my older brother. Thank you. Come back June 15th. June 15th. Yep. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks so much. Talk to me.
All right. Welcome, Adam Hatch, to History Against the Grain. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're coming to us uh, today from Taiwan. That's true. We want to, yeah, we were Taipei City. We want to bring on guests from time to time. We can shed a little light on this mad, 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 mad world of ours. Uh, so we're happy to have you. Uh, first, a little bit of background for our listeners. Adam, you're a California native. Let me point that out right away. San Diego born, uh, graduate, prad graduate of the University of California, Berkeley. Some would say the only University of California, uh, where you grabbed a geography major and found your way, uh, yeah, to Taipei, where you've been living full time ever since 2010. You've been a teacher, a businessman. You're running your own education startup uh, called Inglist. That's E-N-G-L-I-S-T. And you sponsor the online forum known as the Taipei Teen Tribune. By the way, folks, you can follow both Inglist and the Taipei Teen Tribune on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, And lately, you've been uh, running your own uh, blog, Down the Hatch, which people can find uh, at hatchintaiwan.com. Uh, Let me mention, too, that uh, while in Taipei, you uh, managed to earn another degree, an advanced degree, this time in Asian and Pacific Studies from the National Qingqi University there in Taipei. Yeah, again, welcome, Adam. Thank you. You you forgot my first degree was a liberal arts associate's degree from American River College. So that one's important, too. Thank you. Uh, I was either going to sh- save it as our crescendo showstopper yeah. at the end, but yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'm sorry to spoil it. <laughs> Give me your best elevator speech to Westerners about Taiwan's current relationship with China. Um, you know, so it's uh, complicated, um, uh, but not so complicated that people can't understand it. I remember uh, coming over here and people were like, oh, it's just so complex. You know what I mean? It's like, no, I mean, it's worth reading about and it's interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, in uh, 2016, Tsai Ing-wen was elected and she represents the Democratic uh, Progressive Party, I think, is the, the is the mean jindang is in Chinese. And um, they're traditionally have been kind of the Taiwanese independence leaning party. Um, but, the, you know, she's pretty pragmatic, but um, Xi Jinping and, and the, the uh, CCP in, in China hate her. They hate that party. They see it as kind of a threat to Chinese interests. And, and so um, for the, the eight years prior, the other party, uh, the Guomindang, um, had been in power and they had worked pretty hard to, you know, repair rapport with China and to, to make sure that that China and Taiwan were sort of working together. And it seemed like there was, you know, going to be, you know, under that uh, government that there was going to be, you know, increasing sort of uh, collaboration between the two sides. But Taiwanese people hated it. Um, it was, you know, there there were that was the sunflower movement in 2014 blew up because of, you know, the 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 president trying to shove through, you know, really bad kind of selling out Taiwan economic policy. Um, at least that's how a lot of people perceived it. You know, it's debatable if that's how it would have worked. 
but you know, so they, you know, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the current president, was was swept into power, and her party was the majority in the legislature. And then again, just this year, you know, the same thing happened. They, as a matter of fact, you know, the Taiwanese electorate sort of doubled down on that. And so when this party, the independence-leaning DPP, um, came into, you know, control, um, the Chinese government cut off all cross-strait ties. So there's the, in Taiwan, it's the Mainland Affairs Office, uh, or Mainland Affairs Council, rather. And in China, it's the Taiwan Affairs Office, I think. And so those are the two sort of unofficial bodies that work with the governments on sort of each side of the strait. And on the Chinese side, they were like, shut it down. They, they don't communicate directly with the president of Taiwan. They refuse to acknowledge her and, and you know, pretty much any, any forum. And, and so they've, they've really sort of made it clear that they're not going to talk to anybody who doesn't accept what they call the, the one China policy or the 92 consensus, which is, you know, getting a little bit wonky, but, you know, basically they're afraid that Tsai Ing-wen and, and the DPP might lead Taiwan towards an independence path, which they really haven't. Um, at least sort of explicitly. And she's been really pragmatic. You know, it's, it's been, you know, we want to work with China, you know, we want, but it's like we have our country to run and, you know, we're going to go with what people want. And if you look at the numbers, you know, the vast majority of Taiwanese people do not want to be part of China, even in a one country, two system situation like Hong Kong, you know, or, or Macau or, or any of the other sort of special administrative areas. They want nothing to do with that. And so, you know, I mean, the DPP government is sort of like, we're doing what the people want, and um, that makes China really upset. So uh, re relations right now are strained. There seems to be, you know, military buildup, and China is, gets sort of saber-rattly, and, um, but it's really, it doesn't, it's not working to China's benefit at all. You know, they sort of, you know, this carrot and stick policy is what they thought they were doing for you know the last generation basically and it's just backfired it just has not worked at all because Taiwanese people are increasingly consider themselves Taiwanese as opposed to Chinese every time that you know China tries to you know intimidate Taiwan Taiwanese people just get madder and want less to do with China yeah and I want to ask you about that I, I remember talking to you one time and you mentioned uh, and this is before the pandemic of course but you mentioned uh, sort of Chinese tourists uh, coming uh, to Taiwan, you know, taking tours to Taiwan, um, you know, and, and because there's so many, you know, well-preserved sort of pre-communist uh, Chinese temples and other things, you know, maybe better even than, than on the mainland. Is there any such thing? I mean, does it make sense to even talk about a, a pan-Chinese yeah. identity? Yes. And so that's, again, that's sort of a complicated thing. I think politically, there's certainly a minority in Taiwan who consider themselves Chinese. Um, and Taipei really is kind of the bastion for that. Um, uh, a lot of, you know, the descendants of the, the soldiers who came over with Chiang Kai-shek in, you know, 1949, um, you know, Taipei was really sort of the hub of, of that, you know, the nationalist, the Kuomintang power. And so, you know, there are Taiwanese people who are like, no, we're, we're Chinese and we're part of China and we should reunify with China. Um, and so politically that exists. It is, it's, it's a pretty small minority and it's decreasing 
every generation. Uh, I'd say more people sort of split the difference. Um, most Taiwanese people would, you know, acknowledge that yes, ethnically, you know, we are Chinese, you know, to the same degree that, I mean, Taiwan is more Han Chinese ethnically than mainland China is, you know, just, just demographically speaking. 95% of people living on Taiwan, um, their ancestry is, is Han Chinese. Where, you know, in China, you have, you know, Xinjiang, which is, you know, Central Asian. Uh, you have Tibet, which is, you know, closer to, you know, Northern Indian, Nepalese, um, uh, and, you know, Southeast Asian in like Yunnan province. And so, and then up north, you obviously have like, you know, the, the Manchurians and, and uh, you know, different, all these different groups where Taiwan is like Chinese, ethnically speaking, you know, really heavily. Um, and so, and there are obviously, there, there are sort of subsets of what that is in Taiwan, which is, you know, the ethnography of Taiwan. I took a class in, in grad school that was pretty interesting, um, talking about those different groups. But um, it's it's very much Chinese, and so I think Taiwanese people, you know, acknowledge like yes, you know, culturally, you know, we we are Chinese in a lot of ways, and and, and ethnically, um, but you know, the what most Taiwanese people, you know, sort of feel is they don't want anything to do with, you know, Chinese governance, Chinese foreign policy, Chinese, um, you know, communism as it stands today. You know, they, a lot of Taiwanese people are like, but that economy, you know, that's a big market and you know, there's a lot of money to be made there potentially. But increasingly Taiwanese people are like, it's not worth it. Um, you know, it's it that would be sort of selling, you know, Taiwan out and a lot of the stuff that Taiwanese people have come to, to love and appreciate about, you know, their home and their country isn't it, it's just not worth the 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 trade off there. So, um, you know, in terms of, you know, I guess just to sum up, it's, it's like, yes, there is Chinese identity here um, and, and people acknowledge Chinese culture, but most people here, especially people under, you know, 60, um, would say they're Taiwanese, not Chinese. Um, and al yeah. al almost everyone would say, if they wouldn't say, if they say I'm Chinese, they would also say, but I'm also Taiwanese. It's you, very rarely you're going to get people, no, I'm Chinese and, you know, we are part of China. That's, that's increasingly rare. Uh, if we created a meme, it'd have to be something like uh, Chinese, yes, China, not so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, in, in all seriousness, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in, in and I've talked to this on the earlier podcast, is, you know, avoiding a kind of reductionist history of places, you know, that starts with the end and then kind of reverse engineers back into the beginning, whatever the end is, you know. Uh, and the fact is, uh, given, uh, you know, the, the demographic, um, you know, weight of, of Chinese people, as you say, Han Chinese people, language, culture in, in Taiwan, Taiwan itself has always been a crossroads. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, man. Yeah. And I'd like you to speak to that a little bit. Um, can you give us a, maybe a, just a portrait, you know, with broad brushstrokes of the different players who have imprinted the island? You know, over time in its cultures, including the indigenous population, which I think a lot of Westerners aren't too clear about. Yeah, so the I mean, the indigenous population might be the most interesting. Um, 
because I mean, you know, the the native Taiwanese as they're called, or in Chinese it's Yuan Zhu, mean like original peoples is the Chinese name for them. Yeah. Um, they so they got to Taiwan like eight thousand years ago, um, and they are the forebears of the entire Austronesian ethnic group. And so Austronesians, as you know, I'm you know you might know, um, have you know range from Madagascar to Easter Island. Um, and so, you know, they were, um, uh, you know, they spread all through, um, the Asia Pacific and, um, even to Oceania, like New Zealand, um, Hawaii, all of the Pacific islands, you know, are, are, are they're Austronesian and with the exception of Australia, which is, you know, trip on its own. But so the Austronesian groups, they came from what is now mainland China, uh, to Taiwan because they used to be, uh, connected, um, and, you know, honestly, I can't remember if they came, they might have come on boats because they, because uh, uh, they had them, but they also did a lot, they developed a lot of their seafaring stuff in what is now Taiwan. And around that time, you know, at the end of the last ice age, Taiwan was connected to mainland China at one point or another. And so, um, anyway, they got to Taiwan and they have spread of I you know and, and I mean you could look it up the the Wikipedia page on you know the Austronesian sort of uh, cultural group they have there are like sixteen um, language groups of Austronesian languages and I think fourteen of them are in Taiwan alone and so um, it, you know and they you know just there are, I think, 16, 16 acknowledged tribes in Taiwan, but there are, I think, 20 that claim sort of tribeship um, around Taiwan. And like indigenous cultures, you know, the world over, they've been sort of pushed off, you know, their lands and into, you know, not quite as fertile lands and, and you know, haven't really been brought into the socioeconomic sort of situation, you know, that, that's dominant. And like I said, 95% of people on Taiwan are ethnically Chinese. Um, but a good portion of them, especially the people, who, you know, whose ancestors came to Taiwan, you know, after the, the 17th century, they probably have some Aboriginal blood in them um, because there was a lot of mixing and, and signification of the, a lot of the Aboriginal groups who they came into contact with. And so um, that's certainly there. But I've, I've noticed that can be a bit of a fashion, like, you know, in the States where you get folks claiming 116th Cherokee ancestry or something. And it's usually, uh, you know, specious. It's not a true claim. But it, but in the case of Taiwan, it really is. Uh, there was a fair amount of, of mixing, you might say, uh, between later arrivals and those, those indigenous uh, peoples. That uh, I suppose if you did, uh, you know, their ancestry.com would show up. Yeah, I mean, y yes, uh, I I don't know um, yeah. what you know the average amount is or or even sure. how that actually works, but I do know that it, you know it's certainly there and it's old. You know, the the um, first you know Chinese settlers in Taiwan, people are it. I don't know, people are. I was surprised when I learned that Chinese settlers didn't really start trying to settle Taiwan until like the, the 17th century um, when it was encouraged by, uh, uh, it was the Ming dynasty um, at the time to some degree, um, but also uh, really it was the, the um, 
it was the Dutch who were who had colonized uh, what is now Tainan um, in the south of Taiwan, and they needed people to come farm. And obviously, they're not going to get people from Amsterdam to head over and start farming this this island off the coast of China. So they were encouraging Chinese to come and, and, and farm it because the Aboriginal groups weren't agricultural really. And so um, the uh, you know they started. That's when they started doing it. For most of China's history and Japan's and, and everybody else's, uh, Taiwan has been a wonderful refuge for pirates and disease and savages and you know like people are like stay away. It is not the place you want to go. Um, but it was you know Europeans sort of stumbling through Asia, being like, well, we'll try and colonize this one too, you know. <laughs> and so you know they started doing it, and uh, I think it around that time um, that was when you know sort of the Asian powers of the time started realizing the the potential geopolitical significance of Taiwan. And so it was after that, um, uh, the you know Ming loyalists essentially fought off the Dutch um, and established a very short-lived kingdom in Taiwan, um, which was subsequently overrun by the Qing dynasty. Um, and this all happened within like a 40-year period, so it was, it was madness. Um, but, you know, and, and people, increasingly from China came to Taiwan to settle and there was some intermingling like I said with the Aboriginal groups and, and you know under sort of Qing authority Taiwan you know, the population grew at first it was you know and they still hated it it was always a pain in the Qing dynasty's ass like up until um, there it was always you know roving bands of bandits you know unmarried men who were looking to make money and um, you know dealing with you know relations between the locals and the Aboriginal groups and and the different, you know, um, groups of Chinese that were coming over, it was, you know, in the, the 19th century had some straight up gangland situations in Taipei from people who'd come over from like different, um, you know, cities in Fujian province, which is right across the strait. And so those are really interesting, um, you know, but, you know, in terms of being a crossroads, you know, you have, you know, the Aboriginal groups, obviously, you have the Dutch and the Spanish, even for a little while. They fought each other before the Ming loyalists kicked them out. You have the Ming loyalists who came and started their own kingdom for a second. You had the Qing who came and sort of removed them. And, um, you know, and then sort of the uh, some degree of integration with those aboriginals. Then you have um, J the Japanese who, when their sort of colonial aspirations came to a head, Taiwan was sort of there, was J the empire of Japan's kind of testing ground in terms of colonization. It was their first real big one. And, um, you know, so people, you know, born in Taiwan from 1895 until, you know, through World War II, and even after a little bit, um, Japanese was their first or second language. And so uh, local Taiwanese, they call it Taiwanese or Taiwanese Hokkien, um, was sort of like the local language. And Japanese was kind of the the official, you know, language of education and stuff for a long time. Um, and you know, Japan lost in World War II, and the U.S. essentially, um, you know, allowed the KMT, the Kuomintang, the nationalist government that was in charge of China, barely um, to to run things. And then that's where they retreated after World War II in, in 1949. And so they imposed on the locals who were used to speaking Japanese and, and local Taiwanese, everybody's got to speak Mandarin now. 
And so there was a huge language shift, you know, at that point, um, you know, and, and just this really big kind of cultural sort of shakeup that I think took place. And then, you know, after that, it's been increasingly, you know, Taiwan has, has become, you know, really sort of global in a lot of ways, um, especially, you know, after the 80s with, you know, martial law ending and things like that. And so, you know, there's there's a fair amount of, you know, Western influence, obviously. And, um, uh, it, it's a really a globalized culture. And more and more, the, the biggest, you know, foreign groups in Taiwan now aren't, you know, expats, you know, people from Europe or the States or whatever. It's, it's people from, you know, Indonesia and the Philippines and, you know, sort of the migrant workers who are, you know, sending remittance pay, you know, back to, you know, their home countries. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's more than half a million of those workers, you know, in, in Taiwan. And so that's having a cultural effect. Um, so, you know, in terms of crossroads, it's, Taiwan's Asia ground zero. Yeah, and, and and you know maybe in future episodes we can revisit that a little bit because the, the museums alone and like I mentioned earlier the temples, you know they never suffered the uh, the sort of the, the the destruction right of the the cultural revolution like on the mainland. Well, you, I mean, so so the the Nationalist Party Chiang Kai Shek took, I mean, not him personally, I don't think, but um, you know his his crew. Uh, brought over, you know, they ransacked the, you know, forbidden city and a bunch of, you know, like, you know, artifacts that they were, they were, they wanted to protect because they knew that, you know, the part of the, you know, Mao's push was this sort of, you know, rabid modernism. And, you know, and a lot of that stuff would have been destroyed. A lot of stuff was destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. Um, and so the, 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 one of the best, you know, Chinese museums on the planet is in Taiwan, the National Palace Museum. Um, and so they're, you know, stuff, you know, thousands of years old that got carted over from China, you know, when, when the nationalists fled. Um, and honestly, if you go to that museum, it's amazing, but apparently it's only like 10% of the actual collection. They've rotated out. There's a warehouse or two down in Taichung that's just full of, Chinese antiquities, you know, um, and so, you know, plus, like you said, the temples, um, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Chinese culture in Taiwan that comes from before, you know, um, you know, even Japanese rule. And so, you know, there are some books that I can recommend. There's, there's so much. It's, sure. It's, yeah. Well, in fact, we'll, uh, I'll get some of that from you and we'll post on the website. Uh, for people who'd like to follow up, <clears throat> you know, I, I will finish uh, here today uh, with a specific uh, sort of um, example, I guess, of, of the, you know, the rich traditions of, of this island, historical traditions, the, the cross currents. You know, if you think of Taiwan as you describe it, it occurred to me, you know, Taiwan was really this sort of one-stop shop in the South China Sea for everything you wanted to get in Asia, you know, one time or another, even the weird stuff or the contraband stuff, you know. And uh, and so as, as a result, you know, it's still a, it's an emporium, you know, of not only modern business, but traditional things as well. And and one thing that's always really attracted me as, you, as you've told me about living there is the night market in Taipei. And yeah. I don't think most Westerners are, are quite attuned to what that, that whole thing is so uh, break it down for us yeah i mean so the um 
the night markets are really interesting, um, especially to, to outsiders. They're kind of, uh, you kind of get to take them for granted here. Like I don't go to the night market that often because I mean, it's, you know, most of the stuff you're going to buy there is kind of junk. And most of the food you're going to buy there is not particularly good for you. Um, you know, but it's, it's this real sort of, um, you know, Taiwanese people, you know, I, I read, um, uh, Shelly Rigger, who's a professor, um, I forgot where, but she's, she's one of the, the top sort of American researchers on Taiwan specifically. You know, she, she talked about how there's a story in her book. Um, she talks about how, you know, she was in Taiwan and, and she had a cab driver who had lived in the States for a while and she was talking to him and she said, why did you, you know, why did you leave the U.S.? And he's like, it's boring. After eight o'clock, it's, you know, everybody's goes to bed or, you know, they just stay at home. You know, there's no sort of people aren't getting out. And so like the night markets are, you know, chock full of, you know, food carts and, you know, people hawking, you know, alarm clocks and, and, you know, vape pens and, and, uh, you know, cheap cell phone cords. And, you know, you have all that right next to stinky tofu and, you know, fried chicken and, uh, um, you know, bubble milk tea is everywhere. And so, you know, you have these really sort of, uh, you know, treats that you think of as Taiwanese or sort of Asian or whatever. And they're right next to all this kind of, it's like a flea market, but it's more fun and lively and, and kind of interesting. And so, um, you know, people are sort of fascinated by it and it's, it's really kind of in contrast. I think that, that Westerners have this kind of aversion to, um, if it's not sterile enough, I think that people can kind of be like, Oh, I don't know if I trust that or, uh, you know, these flavors are, are a little bit different, you know, than, you know, I didn't like stinky tofu when I got, it took me like six months to really kind of understand what the deal was with it because it smells like bo it's gross the first you're like no why would i eat that it smells like gym socks but it's delicious it's really good um and it's as part of the you know taiwanese people love it you know they i'll, I'll speak to, to taiwanese people who i've just met and they're like what do you think of stinky tofu and i'm like it's good and they're like right and so you know it's there it's this real sort of you know kind of cultural treasure that's really easy they're ubiquitous you know you can find them all over Taipei and in any city in Taiwan and even you know smaller cities have um you know big night markets because that's like the big attraction on you know the weekends and in the evenings is people going out and honestly most of what people are doing is just people watching you know it's 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 a way for people to get together and and um this kind of communal atmosphere and have some snacks and you know, so they're, they're great. Um, everybody should come and get some night market food. Yeah. You know, it sounds really delightful. Uh, cause I can't think of a, a good corollary in the States to that. I mean, people go out to, to bars or whatever and carouse at night, but this seems much more, you know, purely social and mixed in with the mart of crazy vendors and, uh, you know, historians talk about and anthropologists talk about food ways. You know, and it strikes me that Taiwan is a great example of, of food ways because just as you can find all this sort of off the main menu Chinese food, but th there's also great Japanese food, I'm guessing, oh, and yeah. Thai food and just about whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and, and even in the night markets, you know, like you can get corn dogs, you know, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> and so it, it's, it's, they're not, you know, obviously Taiwanese people aren't really shaken by Western food and even like American food is sort of passe, right? They're like, give me something from, 
Germany or, or you know, like paella and, and tapas is like really sort of in vogue here right now. And they're like, American food? You mean like McDonald's? <laughs> I was like, oh man. <laughs> but, um, you know, the you know, night markets have sort of married all that. There, there's in the night market right by my house, there's a, there are a couple sushi places. But then you, you go and you eat the sushi there and it's not like you would get in Japan or in like an American style sushi restaurant. It's like really sort of Taiwanese style sushi. It's its own thing. And so, um, you know, the foodways, uh, I mean, you know, Taiwan is a marriage of, of, you know, Chinese food. And then there's a lot of Japanese influence and different types of Chinese food from the different regions of China. And, and, and it's, you know, it's kind of cool tracing, you know, where all these influences come from and how they've kind of become what they have become. So the night market is a great place to sort of see that in action and, you you'd kind of think of them think like you know a farmer's market, but at night and everything's a lot cheaper, and you can get socks. You know, like that's <laughs> that's the night market. Now, if you could just find a decent burrito, you'd be happy. Is that right? It'll never happen. <laughs> well, Adam Hatch, thank you for giving us your time. I know it's past midnight there in Taipei. Um, and insight and uh, share with us your experience and for basically classing up our little podcast here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope everybody enjoyed those interviews. It was really fun for us to hear those different voices and get to have those conversations. I want to remind you all of the History Against the Grain website, historyagainstthegrain.com. And what we have there is, is a lot of information, just broad information, but also specific to the episodes and so for this episode, we'll have information about how you can uh, look at uh, Adam's stuff. And then we'll have some links to, uh, to Benno's upcoming book. And uh, I believe he's going to actually provide a discount code as well. So if you want to get in on that book, you'll have that opportunity. Other than that, we will talk to you next week. This has been History Against the Grain. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one. So we were